Welcome to Healthy vs. Toxic, the podcast where licensed mental health professionals explore what makes a relationship healthy or unhealthy or even abusive, all from a scientifically informed perspective. Hello, this is Dr. Grande. Today's question asks, what is a communal narcissist? Another question I have here is, do communal narcissists truly have concern for other people? So I answer these questions by looking at the 10 characteristics of communal narcissism. So we know that grandiose narcissists seek to satisfy their core grandiosity, esteem, power, and entitlement, often through agentic means. But they also try to do this sometimes through communal means. So to understand the idea of communal narcissism, we first need to understand the difference between agency and communion. So with agency, we see the grandiose narcissist demonstrates high grandiosity by exaggerating their competence, ambition, intelligence, creativity, influence, extroversion, uniqueness, and attractiveness, all characteristics of the agentic domain. So they're egotistic. They believe in the statement, others exist for me. So essentially, antisocial. A grandiose narcissist could also satisfy their core self-motives by exaggerating communal attributes. For example, warmth, agreeableness, dependability, and getting along with others. So in a sense, pro-social behavior. For many years, it was believed that there was only one expression of grandiose narcissism, agentic. The idea of communal narcissism was thought of as an oxymoron. Research had shown that narcissists display exaggerated judgments about themselves when it comes to agentic attributes, but not on communal attributes. However, more recent research shows that there is a small group of grandiose narcissists that have high grandiosity on communal domains. This agency communion model of narcissism is sometimes thought of as the superhero versus the saint model. The superhero wants power, but somebody with saintly self-deceptive enhancement wants approval. So research has established that communal narcissism exists but a number of these studies were directed at normal levels of narcissism, what we call subclinical narcissism, as opposed to pathological narcissism, the type of narcissism we see associated with dysfunction, like what we might see with narcissistic personality disorder. So additional studies were conducted, and they found that pathological narcissism also fits with this agency communion model. The pathological communal narcissist simultaneously pursues self-enhancement and self-transcendence, thought of as being at opposite ends on the same continuum, right? So we see this difficulty with this construct. But as it turns out, somebody can have concern for their own interests, as well as appearing to be interested in the welfare of others. So we see there is this theory that the communal narcissist is simply pretending to have others' best interest in mind, but they do a very good job at pretending. So I'll talk more about that in the signs. So let's get to those signs now. Let's look at the 10 characteristics of communal narcissism. So looking at characteristic number one, this is the unusual relationship between communal narcissism and the dark triad. So the dark triad contains three traits, psychopathy, narcissism, and Machiavellianism. Now, many narcissists have psychopathic and Machiavellian traits. That's why we see this construct of the dark triad. That's why it holds together well. But communal narcissists tend to have low scores on psychopathic and Machiavellian traits, which in a way kind of makes sense because narcissism is considered to be lighter 
than the other dark traits. Moving to item number two, communal narcissists secretly want power, even though they're motivated by approval, that need for power is still there. They won't sacrifice an opportunity to get a higher position in a pro-social organization, including organizations comprising volunteers, right? So the communal narcissist is always angling to get back to a feeling of power, a position of power. And that'll become a little bit more clear as I look at more of these different items. So moving to item number three, the communal narcissist can convert back to agentic narcissism. So they may be a communal narcissist today, but next year they may be an agentic narcissist. Interestingly, agentic narcissists do not tend to convert over to communal narcissism. So we more or less believe this is a one-way street, communal to agentic, but rarely or never agentic to communal. When communal narcissists have an opportunity to satisfy their core motives in an agentic fashion, this is when they move from communal self-perceptions and behavior over to the agentic side. So essentially, there isn't a good fit between narcissism and communal values. Hi, I'm Matt Harris. Seton Tucker and I host the podcast Impact of Influence, which for two years covered in depth Alec Murdoch, who was eventually convicted in 2023 of murdering his wife, Maggie, and son, Paul. That story continues to evolve, and we will cover that. Plus, we will tell you stories of other true crime events that have happened in the South. Please join us on Impact of Influence. And give us a follow on the Impact of Influence Facebook page. Welcome to the Bravery Academy. My name is Emma Ferris, and I'm your host. This podcast is crafted to share the stories of courageous individuals who've overcome adversity and found the courage to live their best lives. We'll explore the science of well-being, courage and connection, and interview top thought leaders, game changers, and survivors. And it's from these stories that we learn what resilience is, how to heal, how to recover, and how to be brave. Moving to item number four, somebody becomes a communal narcissist instead of an agentic narcissist because of environmental factors. So both agentic and communal narcissism share genetic factors. The same genetic influences seem to lead to both expressions of narcissism. But communal narcissists develop because they had a different environment. They may have experienced more success or been given more encouragement in communal as opposed to agentic domains. Item number five, validating the success of a communal narcissist may make them less communal. Some people believe that we should encourage communal narcissists with praise and support because they're thought of as less destructive than agentic narcissists, but that strategy may actually backfire. When a communal narcissist is sure that they will continue to have power in the future, they move toward agentic means to meet their need for grandiosity. So we have to be careful when validating the communal narcissist. Item number six, they tend to make statements that contain both narcissistic and pro-social elements at the same time. In many of their proclamations, we can see that something is a little bit off. Some examples that I've read in the literature and heard in clinical practice, I am the most helpful person anyone has ever encountered. I am extraordinarily trustworthy. I'm more caring than anyone else in the world. I'm entitled to save the world from poverty. I find that one particularly unusual, right? Instead of saying I'm entitled, they could just say I want to. But no, they typically say something like I'm entitled 
to save the world. If people just get out of my way, I can bring peace and harmony to the world. That's another one of my favorites. Only somebody who is superior can truly help people. Normal people should be honored to have me as a friend because I'm the best friend a person could have. And the last statement, my kindness is so powerful that sometimes it hurts people, right? So we can really see clearly the narcissism. And then we have this element of altruism, agreeableness, helpfulness kind of mixed in there, but the two really don't fit well together. Item number seven, communal narcissism does have a dark side, even though it's not related to the other dark traits I talked about before, psychopathy and Machiavellianism. Namely, it has been associated with peer-reported aggression. So it may not be wise to consider communal narcissists as automatically safe to be around because of that seemingly pro-social element. We still see aggression. Sign number eight, both agentic and communal narcissists have about the same levels of mental health distress, but it's possible that communal narcissists are actually higher in neuroticism. So here we do see mixed findings, but it's an interesting theory about the neuroticism. Again, kind of consistent with the idea that narcissism and communion don't fit well together. The communal narcissist isn't really content with their method for satisfying their need for grandiosity. Item number nine, we see that communal narcissism is actually distinct from vulnerable narcissism. There's no mixed findings here like we saw in the prior item. Vulnerable narcissism appears to be completely unrelated to communal narcissism. With a communal narcissist, we would not expect to see shame, resentfulness, hypersensitivity to criticism, pessimism, or distrust. Communal narcissism is actually positively associated with trust, which is really one of the most confusing attributes of this expression of narcissism. One of the core personality factors associated with narcissism is low agreeableness. So to have a high expression on a facet of agreeableness, again, trust, just seems a little unusual, but it is what we see in the research literature. Now moving to item number 10, the last item here, the communal narcissist is well-liked. So agentic narcissists tend to be disliked. Communal narcissists are liked more than agentic narcissists, and they're liked more than non-narcissists. So communal narcissist has the highest level of likability of these three categories of agentic, communal, and non-narcissist. So now moving to the second question, do communal narcissists truly have a concern for other people? Have researchers just found a way to assign antisocial motives to prosocial behavior? So now people can't do anything good without being called a narcissist. So this brings up the idea of the wolf in sheep's clothing. What if it's simply a wolf dressed up as a wolf? Now, I'm not really sure what that would look like because wolves don't wear clothes, but either way, a wolf who looks like a wolf, right? A wolf with limited apparel options, right? Is that what's going on here? Well, here's what the research says. Individuals high in communal narcissism seem to make pronounced attempts to present themselves as oriented to the needs of others without actually possessing the corresponding implicit trait concept. So as it turns out, communal narcissists are only communal in their behavior, not in their personality. So they don't have the personality traits consistent with being high in communion. This is the so-called hypocritical communion hypothesis. So a wolf in sheep's clothing? Maybe. But we must remember that there is a self-deceptive component to narcissism. A communal narcissist would have a distorted view of their own communion. 
So they really could just be fooling themselves into believing that they care about other people. Self-deception is very powerful, and we know self-deception is extremely common with narcissism. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. The producers for this show are Christopher Breitigan and Madison Linden. The executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. For more content, please visit our website at arslanga.media. To leave feedback or suggestions, send an email to info at arslanga.media. To find more content from Dr. Grande, including a link to his YouTube channel and his other Ars Longa podcasts, visit our website at arslanga.media. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or mental health advice. Ars Longa, Vita Brevis. Hi there, I'm Heather Drago. And I'm Sarah Saunders. We host the podcast, That's a Hard No, about saying no and setting boundaries. So you can become that true and empowered you that this world needs. Saying no isn't just okay. It's the key to living an authentic, fulfilling life. I'm a licensed professional clinical counselor. So while this podcast is in no way a replacement for one-on-one therapy, I suppose I know what I'm talking about. I'd say so. We talk about learning to say no and set healthy boundaries and how it impacts mental health, physical health, relationships, parenthood, and more. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit our website, hardnopodcast.com. We're here to help you find your no and say it unapologetically. That's a hard no.